This is Landry.audio. Listen, like, and subscribe. That means hitting that little bell on YouTube, as far as I know, to stay up to date with the interviews that we're doing. This is kind of my personal series on the guys that I've trained with in, in mixed martial arts. I've already had the opportunity to do um, Australian legends like uh, Anthony Parosh, Elvis Sinisic, and even Peter Graham, who I knew uh, training with at Larry's Gym in Boxing Works. Uh, Larry Papadopoulos is a Pancrase and Shudo practitioner. He's been in the ring with Ken Shamrock, uh, Akihiro Gono, uh, competed in ADCC, uh, um, works with the Sydney Roosters NRL club, uh, which we'll start talking about grapple tackle and all that sort of jazz as well. Uh, I was a member of his gym in boxing works for four or five years from, I want to say 2009, 2010 up to 2014 while I was living in the CBD, otherwise known as the downtown of Sydney. Uh, again, working with Larry and guys like uh, K1 legend, Peter Graham. I distinctly remember a period of time doing mid morning classes with Larry when uh, MMA was scheduled in the morning, but no one would be there because I'd all be at work. So I, I got to have a lot of private time with Larry doing sparring sessions and learning a lot about wrestling. Um, one of my favorite memories I shared it with Larry was during there, the UFC came to Australia for the very first time. And we had everyone coming through the gym at that time. Big Noguera, Vondale Silva, Mayhem Miller, Christoph Szczynski, Chris Hazeman, whose fight got canceled with Elvis, uh, shoot a box owner, Rafael Cordero, who you might know is training Mike Tyson in his later days now. And even had my favorite fighter of all time, Randy Couture pop down to say hello, who I believe Larry's very good friends with. Uh, and it's been almost a decade since I last spoke with Larry. So I'm kind of almost surprised that you remember me as well, but, um let's start there larry uh you've got a, you've got a hell of a lot of credentials a lot of black belts why don't you run us through um you know your your background and experience not a lot of black belts <laughs> um like yeah typical story of martial arts started uh i started judo when i was 10 started doing uh japanese style jiu-jitsu more like modern jiu-jitsu at 16 yeah self-defense kind of stuff uh, when I finally got to uni and when I was training at 16, the, the gym I trained at or the dojo back then with my sensei instructor, Vince McCann, we used to have boxers come in, judo guys come in. It was actually quite mixed back then, you know, so I was lucky from 16. I had a very open-minded coach who um, himself had done some boxing um, and was quite willing. We had karate guys in there, so we would cross-train from there but yeah the core was jiu-jitsu and the most important thing for the coaches my early coach was uh it was never you can't go anywhere else if you want to train somewhere else go and learn you know show us what you learned or yeah see if it works etc when i went to uni i continued training did more judo because uh, new south wales uni was a very strong judo uni uh, so then i actually dislocated my knee in a varsity second year that I went there so I had to change tact uh, back then it wasn't arthroscopic it was open surgery so I got massive two scars on my knee because my knee actually went out sideways nice. I was told I wouldn't compete again in anything because it was such a yeah, complete dislocation every ligament torn and whatever so 18 months later I came back and discovered like wrestling so it just because you know, I had that fear from judo is when it happened mm. I started doing more wrestling um, and was always aware of what was happening and reading the martial arts magazine. And then uh, one of the magazines was by John Will. He used to do the blitz and used to talk. Yeah. He was Penjack Silat, whatever. And then so, uh, yeah, wrestling in India. And then suddenly started talking about this Gracie Jiu Jitsu. So that piqued our interest. 
when finally there was an opportunity to train with uh, uh, John doing seminars, did that with John Wills. That was my first introduction to um, BJJ as such. So at that stage, yeah, John himself, I think was uh, he was doing his shoot fighter. He was great. You know, he had his own system. I think he was only a blue belt. But the brilliant thing was that he was probably teaching you know, the stuff he learned at that level, which was appropriate to everybody else. Mm. And I think that helped us go, go along. So, yeah, that, that was the BJJ, how I got started with BJJ. And luckily enough, I'd wrestled and done judo. So, yeah, and my jiu-jitsu previous coach, he was really big on groundwork. You know, we do this thing called back-to-back, start back-to-back and wrestle. And he was really big on grappling as well because the style of jiu-jitsu we, uh, that I did in Australia, the actual group was called the Australian Society of Jiu-Jitsu, but it traces its history right back to 1906. And in 1906, a Japanese fellow by the name of Ruguro Fukushima came to Australia. And Fukushima had a standing offer, come come one, come all, and he'd wrestle them all. They'd put judo or jiu-jitsu jackets on. Uh, he was from Hagiwara's Jiu-Jitsu school, so he wasn't a Kodokan guy. We've researched him, we've got pictures of him. There are newspaper articles about him. And what he did, he actually challenged a boxer down in Melbourne, a guy called McVie. So he was one of the original mixed martial arts guys. Probably what was happening in Brazil was happening here in Australia and people don't know. And there are records of the competitions that this guy got in. He In the boxer versus jiu-jitsu guy in Melbourne, uh, Fukushima, it was best out of three fours, uh, got sparked about a minute into the first round, was out cold. Okay. I drag him back to his corner. He's vomiting. He's really bad. And this is the description. You can see this description in the newspapers at the time. And the comes to, oh, and they send him out again. <laughs> mate, drop back up. Apparently, he did, and it describes he scissor take down. He used his legs to right. scissor take down. An ankle locked him. Won the second round. Right. Went back to the corner. Was still sick. Got out the third round. Did the exact same thing. So McVie or whatever his name had small little gloves on. Was trying to knock him out, and he just yeah, did yeah. Can he scissor throw? And ankle lock the guy and beat him two out of three, and that's that's actually recorded in Australian newspapers and uh, and stuff like that. And he would take on all comers, boxers, wrestlers, and he used to go in the shaman boxing troupe, which used to do you know all in competitions like that. So that was kind of where my jujitsu came from. They had a very strong wrestling and then cross training background. So that's probably I was lucky. I started with that jujitsu rather than a lot of other jujitsus, which were you know, too traditional, which you, you would never have thought of boxing, wrestling and stuff like that. So I think I was very fortunate. I had that open-mindedness from when I first started and that helped me later on. That's why you'd probably imagine a lot of jiu-jitsu guys wouldn't have even gone to BJJ saying, oh, you know, it's fighting on the ground. Whereas my coach was, yeah, go and learn. Sounds great. So um, anyway, that's a long story. So basically judo, uh, Japanese jiu-jitsu or base Japanese jiu-jitsu, wrestling, boxing, BJJ, my credentials are I'm a fifth degree, though I could have been more in the Japanese style of jiu-jitsu. I've got a shodan or uh, in in judo from my uh, coach that I had, uh, Sunny Kuchi, and I'm uh, now a third, I think it's third degree uh, BJJ, just yeah, as you do in time, uh, through Sej Haddad in uh, Brazil. And they're my only actual credentials. So they're the three belts that I do have. I think three is enough. Yeah. <laughs> so, so in another interview, then I I had heard that you you're associated with uh, John uh, Donahue, though. Yeah. So what happened was when I was fighting. So in 
94, yeah, 90, 93, uh, we used to have a gym on Castle, uh, sorry, on Pitt Street in the city, and it, the monorail used to go past, and a Japanese guy happened to be looking out the <laughs> monorail, looking through our windows, we were on the same level, and noticed uh training and we must have been i think at that time we were doing some jujitsu or something and he got off the monorail came up and yeah walked in you know didn't speak english probably took some photos went back to japan he was actually a reporter in japanese uh uh, martial arts magazine said oh here we have and he he must have seen back then what our class our typical class was uh do stand-up do grappling standing like wrestling and then do groundwork yeah, so we were doing mixed martial arts. And the article, the original article, I still have, and he says, uh, uh, kakutogi, which means, you know, kind of uh, fighting styles of martial arts in, in Sydney, Australia. And then the uh, talent scouts from Pankras saw it and said, wow, look at this. You know, these guys, they were looking for people to fight in Pankras. So, yeah, we, we were training one day and this Japanese, oh, this guy called Greg Smith and a Japanese guy, uh, Mr. Ozaki, come through the door, introduce themselves. We're talent scouts from Pankras. We're looking for fighters wishing to go to Japan and, and compete. And I thought, what a great opportunity. I've always wanted to go to Japan, you know, the home of martial yeah. arts, so to speak. And so in that was in 93. So in 94, started fighting Pankras. Um, unfortunately, Pankras, yeah, like I, I did okay, but not fantastic, but it was no weight class. So you were fighting guys. My first fight with Scott Bizak was about 100. 26 kilos and I weighed 88 back then. So it was, though I did okay, you know, eventually I cracked a couple of ribs. I've never cracked ribs before and I kind of panicked in the fight and, you know, didn't know what to do about it. If I'd ever done it before, I probably wouldn't have panicked. Um, and then, anyway, I was fighting that and I switched to Shudo. And then when I switched to Shudo, um, like I'd met Cameron Quinn up in Queensland. So I don't know if you ever trained with Cameron. He used to come down. So I'll ask you to pause because there's so much stuff I want to get to in the background yeah. before we actually hop into the fighting. But you mentioned Cameron Quinn, where I teach now at a place called Newcastle Karate. Uh, Sensei Mark Matthews, who runs it, I think is associated with Cameron Quinn. Yeah. So I've started to learn more about, you know, traditional um, karate. And, and um, I still got the original VHS tape of, I think it was Australian caged, combat which had mario and elvis in it and i think cameron quinn is the ref in that if i'm not yes, mistaken he was. that's right yeah so i've still got that on vhs floating around somewhere which is how i was originally introduced to elvis which is how i ended up in sydney coming to australia which is how i ultimately ended up meeting you as well it's uh all from a stupid videotape hey yeah. <laughs> um so anyway I, I, with uh, with cameron that's how i met john donahue so i know it's a long way but i was fighting in in shooter by that time and i thought I, uh, with John Will, um, I didn't. I, I thought I'd be continuing studying under John, but what happened because I was fighting Pankras, and John had an association with the with the Machados. John's opinion was that if I was fighting in Japan, it would uh, uh, the guys in Japan would learn the BJJ kind of secrets, and he didn't want me to help them because one day they and the Machados, or so, you know, it was one of those things. And John basically said, "Look, I." can't coach you anymore so instead right. of continuing with john will that's why i eventually found john donahue uh through cameron quinn john uh cameron quinn said look this is aussie guy in la teaching out of the Inasano academy and i happened to be there for my uh so dan and santo bruce lee la donahue yeah, all so, this sort of connection yeah, right so okay. and the funny thing was john donahue was with the machado so he was one of mohegan machado's main training partners you know right. so it all goes back to the Machados. And my first grade is actually by Hegan Machado because John was only a brown belt at the time. 
and I'd go and train with John Donahue in LA. And then he said, look, I asked Hegan if you're a blue belt and he said, yeah, you can be a blue belt. So that's how I got my first grade. Actually, officially, Hegan. Okay. Oh, thank you, Hold on, explain this to me again. So, so you're training with John Will, who says we can't continue to teach you because we can't give the Japanese BJJ secrets. Go speak to John Donahue, who's also no, Machado. Didn't say and, John Donahue, who right, said, who's okay, all... so I stopped training with John Will. Right. Okay. Um, and it was but quite you... funny because there was incidences where some of my guys would go to Anthony Lang's. They had seminars with John, and um, and uh, and then when he found out it was one of my guys, oh, they're gonna leave. This <laughs> is like, yeah, right. uh, look, it was quite strange at the time. I thought it was quite odd of John, but look, he, he had his his reasons for doing stuff. And um, anyway, so I stopped training with John Will, who's a Machado guy. And then a, a year or a couple of years later, I hook up with John Donahue, and I trained at the Machados, and I've got yeah. stories of training at Machados in LA. And my first grade is by. Hegan Machado. Yeah. Um, and then when John Donahue moved back to Australia, that's when I started training with John Donahue. And, and quite honestly, as far as yeah, uh, technique and stuff, I, I cannot comment on John Will because yeah, obviously I trained with John very early and I'm sure he's uh, very, very competent. He's very, very good. The same as Peter Debeen. Um, uh, but John Donahue, you know, I found to have good encyclopedic knowledge and he had a good wrestling base from training with people like Rico Ciparelli and, and that's yeah, how I'm that's a name him. I haven't heard in a while that those are yeah. those sort of UFC 2030s his name was yeah. bandied all around then and so you know like for me it was kind of okay well this guy's quite willing to coach me and he didn't have any issues with me fighting and and that's how I got got on with John Donahue and then mm. yeah it, it it was kind of yeah still a lot of respect for John and that but yeah we've just gone our own ways he does his own thing and yeah, since I stopped fighting, I kind of done my own thing too. And you know, I don't, I don't like playing politics. That's why you know, if, yeah. if people get really political with me, I, I kind of disassociate myself because I really don't want to. Yeah, for for me, the the best thing that um, I've heard as far as martial arts and that goes is that if you close your eyes and let me punch you in the face, yes. you tell me <laughs> you, you can't tell, tell whether, what art it is. Tell me I... whether I use the boxing <laughs> technique, taekwondo punch, karate punch. Same as if you close your eyes and I arm bar you or sweep you, tell me whether that was Machado Jiu-Jitsu, yeah, Gracie Baja, yeah, it's all the same. So I, I asked Elvis this uh, as well, and it seems to me, because again, I didn't move to Australia until 2004, and, and I ended up at SPMA, which was Elvis and Anthony at the same time. But it seems to me with a lot of the circle, at least that I know, it seems that the Machados had an imprint here in Australia long before the Gracies. Because you you mentioned Will and Lange and Donahue, who are all Machado as well. Absolutely. I think so. really the birth of BJJ in Australia, I, I think they explained that Pete Devine and, and John were together. And they used okay. to travel together and do all the training together. And then they ended up in Brazil. And John went, followed the Machados back to the States, is my understanding. But Peter stayed there. And that's okay. why Peter got involved with um, Carlinhos. And Peter Debean, you know, like stayed and trained and got graded there. So, yeah, a different level of a different kind of training and, and whatever. So, but John came back and I think John really is is the so-called godfather of BJJ in Australia. Yeah, I believe he started well before all these other groups that came out. And yeah, Australia owes a big debt of gratitude to, to John Will for having done that, for being one of the first pioneers that went out there and, and did it now, regardless of you know, whose school is better and whose style is better, you know, you've got to acknowledge the efforts that guy made and, and the impression. Like, I mean, if it wasn't for John Will, I wouldn't have been as interested, you know, in mm -hmm. BJJ. 
and then I owe John Donahue a great debt of data gratitude because of you know the technical stuff and then the doors he opened to to other people so i've been very fortunate i think i've trained with the right people at the right time yeah yeah um you talk about uh, going through knee surgery and, and doing judo uh, comparatively to wrestling. I've done a little bit of both as well, but I don't think a lot of people understand kind of the, the fundamental differences in the sport. And, and you would have trained as well judo at a time where you could still attack the legs, which I don't think is part of oh, yeah. uh, judo as well anymore. But um, I remember practicing with that jacket and just getting thrown around, like going airborne comparatively to, to wrestling. And can you just take us through the, the differences of what that does to your body, you know, judo comparatively to wrestling and, and why you ended up, you know, moving down that path? I, I think judo, um, there's a plus and minus, there's a positive and negative. In judo, there's a heck of a lot more landing on a very hard surface. Tatami yes. notoriously <laughs> around the world. That's I, one way to say it. I trained in Ochanamizu in Japan and the tatami were basically, basically on a concrete base in the basement and it was just horrible. Mm. Um you know, I remember early days of, of training, you, you just get thrown repetitively. Now, I believe it toughens your body up. But one thing I, I think maybe they're more aware of now, con- continued impact and landing will create head trauma. Yeah. So, yeah, people now are understanding that, yeah, uh, getting thrown a lot and, and people have been concussed and people have died from head impact. And yeah. judo is probably more notorious than that than wrestling. Wrestling, you might break a neck because you unfortunately a lot of the techniques are to land on your head and bridge on your head but you don't get as much concussive force i don't think you get as much concussion in wrestling and wrestling mats are much softer much Mm. more softer than judo mats um but i think things are changing a little bit um with with the jacket the jacket gives you more handles in wrestling you know you've got certain handles wrist yeah, tricep, bicep, yeah, collar tie, yeah, under, collar tie, underhook. So you can use those handles in judo. You know, you've got the full length of the lapel. You know, you've yeah, you've got parts of the jacket where you can grip where you wouldn't normally grip a human being unless you grabbed an ounce of flesh. So, yeah, the amount of throwing technique is is much larger than um, than wrestling. You know, as far as I'm concerned, and the amplitude of the throws used to be much higher amplitude. Mm. judo because you wanted that hip on where they said you know the whole body so judo had higher amplitude throws you know wrestling the big amplitude throws were only ever going to be the suplexes but wrestling if you knock a person down they fall down get on top you still got points you didn't yeah in wrestling you knock guys down quite often rather than throw them yeah trips and stuff like that so uh, yeah judo it's the impact of landing you know there's a lot more concussive force and and um stuff like that in wrestling a lot more twisting and yeah landing and again you don't land on your back you twist and land at your front and, yeah uh, yeah I've, yeah it's you've got to do both to understand and then you've got the differences between greco and freestyle so, well, we'll talk about that in a second because I uh, I recently signed. We're part of the catch program as well. And catch seems to be just blasting off through MMA now. So we'll we'll, we'll kind of break that up into the stuff. Yeah. But before we we get into that, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is you know a lot of people don't understand the issues of, of when you're growing up of cross training at other gyms. And as I mentioned, I, I didn't have a problem uh, doing this. So like when you know with, with the limited amount of fights that I had, Elvis and Anthony, I'd be over at PCYC to do yeah. boxing work with those guys. But the time period that you were growing up, and with, tell me about the culture of doing martial arts and I think in BJJ they use the term creanche, which Creonche, is a, traders. A, a, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I never heard that till later. You know, I, I, I think that was maybe one of the reasons why John Will took that tack. But look, I understand if you're starting to train with someone and and the coach feels that it's going to be detrimental to you going to another style. 
and yeah, you can say, look, you really need to get your base here. That makes sense, you know. Um, and I don't think being able to go to other schools, it wasn't, I, I showed a real interest in, and a hunger at the knowledge um, that my coach said, look, I've got to feed this, you know, uh, and then he allowed me. But, you know, we were already cross-training in the gym. Yeah. I think some people don't want you, most people, unfortunately, don't want you cross-training because they don't want to lose the student and go to someone better or that's mm. not as good. Um, but if someone sincerely feels, look, it's going to be detrimental to you, look, I say, look, stick with me for a little while, get your base here and then go and, and then go to those other schools. Uh, the same way when we get someone uh, in our boxing kickbox and they want to go sparring, it says, look, make sure one of us is with you because you go there, they're not going to look after you. You know, the coaches yeah, are yeah. So that's a real concern for a coach with people going to other schools. Um, one of the things I always found very difficult, I've employed a lot of Brazilian coaches to teach at my school and it's been a constant and that's why I won't do it anymore is, yeah, quite often they, they, oh, they, they build up their number base and, and off, off they go. And, yeah. And they want to be their own school. And it's just like, dude, it's the wrong thing to do. And, mm. and they quite often, they don't understand. It's just like if you're a uh, football coach and you're at one team and then you go to the other team, you know, it doesn't mean you've got to carry the old team over there. You're a professional coach and act as a profession getting paid to coach, yeah. build up that team. You don't steal the players and go to the next team. You just go to the next team or build your own team from scratch, you know, build that around you. And then, yeah, okay, you, you, you poach players and, and do whatever. But, yeah, so, yeah, Crianche, I can understand um, – I can understand kind of that side of it. But when you come from wrestling, when you train at wrestling, I can tell you, I've got cauliflower ears. And it's funny, when you sit, when you go to a wrestling gym, and I've, and I've been spotted in crowds at – Funny I get I get yeah. the same thing. Your yeah, your your legit is is right there. They, they already know that you're legit. I guess almost it's a, it's <laughs> it's your it's your visa to get into the country. You know what's so funny? It's like two dogs sniffing each other's ass. Now we've dogs sniffing each other. There you go. He's got cauliflowers. You got you go and you look at each other's cauliflower ears and you wrestling or jiu jitsu and, and then you have this. Yeah. Thing. Well, I get asked if I play league a lot, and I go, no, I, I you know I'm not, not a league player, but 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 yeah, with with wrestling especially, I've been to bulgaria russia italy uh obviously greece and, and anywhere i go and if i if i go to a wrestling club it's come in brother come in and train yeah, yeah, train. yeah. there's none of this oh which style which school are you from whatever you're a wrestler you're a brother yeah you're you're a brother and that and then they and you train because there's no secrets in wrestling and the only way i'm going to beat you even if i know your best technique if i practice it's just grit it. effectively and, half the time yeah, you've got to train. And yeah. unfortunately, I think uh, in BJJ back then, it was, oh, these are our techniques. These are secrets. It's like, ah, is there a secret really? You know, there's, there's I kind of like that. I might start to use that. Your, your ears are your credentials. Like I said, it, it's like the two dogs sniffing each other's butts. It's, it's, it's so funny that I've looked at someone and you just see this, you go, <laughs> you look at each yeah. other's And like I said, I've been poolside at Vegas. And just by chance, this guy looks at me and I look at him. We've both got cauliflower. Ukraine, oh, yeah, what are you wrestling? And it happened to be a jiu-jitsu instructor from LA yep. that my friends in Greece trained with. Yeah, right, yeah. yeah. And then we go, oh, you're so Oh, you're Larry. And it's just, you know, Nectarius and Bunny, you're this. Yeah, yeah, we're good friends. And then when I traveled back to LA, it was like, come and train with me. You know, it's, it's you don't. It's a very small world, isn't it? Yeah. In the end, and, and you know, the, the time for where one school yeah, to stop your student from traveling to other schools, or when people have open mats, 
now now it's more common to have open mat. Everybody comes from mm. schools, they train together and you get stronger. And again, when, when in Australia, I don't think we have the the population base to have one club with 30 of the best guys in, you know, like they do yeah. in Brazil. An AKA or, or something like that or... Uh... Yeah, and it's the same in all combat sports in Australia. You ask all the good boxers; they're all cross, they're all sparring each other all the time. Mm, <laughs> they have yeah. to, you know, they help each other. Yeah, but then they might fight each other six months down the track. They just stop sparring, and and that's what I found in Pancras. You know, when I was living at the gym, we'd be training all together, and then they come up and say, "Oh, you can't train with him anymore. You're fighting him in a month." So yeah. we would train at separate times, and that would happen. Yeah. Let's let's talk about those differences a little bit because you come from an earlier era. I mean, you're, you're kind of fighting, you know, prior to you know the the UFC might have been happening, but still a lot of people didn't even really know. UFC this. started so, in ninety three. Yeah. yeah. So, so an oddity. Yeah. Do do you? It's it's and it's even hard to to harken back to a time where you couldn't look it up on the internet. It's like how did you even find out about this stuff? But how to, to talk to us about what pancreas is and what Shudo is and, and the differences okay. organizationally and, and all that sort of you thing. You go back to the history of all Japan wrestling. So basically, Japan obviously loved their combat sports and they started pro wrestling. Mm. And uh, pro wrestling... You know, this is hard style. It's well, it, was, it, it actually goes right back to um, one of the big sumo uh, guys. I'll think of his name in a sec. Um, and he, was, he said, I want to start professional wrestling and uh like antonio noki and, and guys yeah. like that so there was one guy i'll think of his name in a sec and he started pro wrestling in japan and there was a lot of people backing him. and from pro wrestling you've you had all japan and new japan wrestling and stuff like that and and you had uh, they all used to go to it's quite interesting they're all together and they used to go to gotch in Tampa, Florida and train. And, and we'll talk about catch a little bit later yeah. as well. Yeah. Go and train with Gotch. Yeah. And they'd come back. And- oh, I'll enjoy that. I got my little, my little Saku doll. <laughs> oh, good. And you, yeah. you ask, most of those guys went and trained with Gotch. It was kind of like a, a thing. Now, they all used to be part of uh, New Japan Wrestling and the Pancras guys used to fight there. And then what happened is they they went to, you know, the godfathers there who were there and said, we want to start our own promotion but we actually want to do real wrestling, real fights, but pro wrestling, real fights. And they, and those uh, are called shoots. Is that? Well, yeah. If you look at traditionally, yeah, you had journeymen, you had shooters and then you had hookers. Yeah. Hookers were the guys that could break everybody. Shooters, the guys that could really fight and journeymen were the bullshit guys. They, they wanted shooters and hookers only. So they, they went to new Japan or, or whatever it was back then. I think new Japan was the, was the old one and they sponsored them. So, okay. Go and train with Gotch, do whatever you want, and tell us how you're going to start this. They went and trained with Gotch, and they asked Gotch, and they said, well, yeah, we want to have real pro wrestling where it's real fights. What can we call it? And he said, look, there was the Pancration, you know, so we call it Pancras, and that's where Pancras came from because Carl Gotch told them to do it. They went back, and they started. So he's the creator of that name, hearkening back to thousands of years ago, effectively. Yeah, Yeah, right. So... um, uh, Suzuki and Funaki, they were the two main stars at that time. They were big, big names. And they got sponsored to start a new promotion. So with money, they were they were seeded by New Japan. So they started, and they took a lot of the real top fighters, they started these real fights. And that's why they looked for talent from overseas. So if you look at Buff Rutten, you know, like the first fights, he was fighting in those old felt shin pads. And, yeah, yeah. You know, and yeah, they they liked the idea of that super uh, superhero look with the yeah, shin pads and the knee pads and the shoes. The trunks, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so 
that's where punk rust started but the idea was to have real fights using pro wrestling so it was open hand and then it was kind of an agreement you wouldn't strike on the ground you would wrestle on the ground though in some fights it was striking on the ground especially if you pissed off one of the japanese they they'd control you and hit you or vice versa that's how what's right you know, alan goes as well yeah alan goes started striking him on the ground then he got his knee or his ankle torn out alan goes he was wearing all that gear and uh, yeah it was like i was yeah, right. alan goes when he first fought he fought uh, frank shamrock yeah right uh, okay forget that and frank basically like he beat beat frank up on the ground because he out controlled him but then yeah. frank would always get into the leg locks and Alan just put up with a lot. I think it tore his knee out and like it, yeah, it right. ruined his ankle. We, we had to carry him out. Of, like we were at the corner, walk out of the ring, yeah, get up, where do it. So then when he got to the corner, he just collapsed. And you know, I don't think he was prepared for the uh, the adrenaline rush. But look, Pancras was was real fighting, open hand, um, and obviously one of the big names back then was to get in Shamrock. So they got Shamrock, mm. Bus Root became a big big name, and it was like doesn't matter what weight class you are. 30 minute round and there was those rope escapes so the basically what they did they tried to even it up that you could do an eight count like a 10 count if you got knocked down so if someone got hit and got knocked down you could get a 10 count but also if you're getting near submitted to give the striker a chance if he grabbed the rope what they called a rope escape it was the equivalent of a eight count yep. so that's how the judges would score the fights at the end so that's why you had those rope escapes also punk rust, they were, they were very forward thinking. They, they looked at their business model and they said their talent is their fighters, their talent pool. They can't afford to have their talent pool um, you know, decimated by heel hooks. So what happened in the early days, guys were getting their legs broke. Like, yeah, you know, they just put up the typical Yamato Domashi to the death. You know, and there were so many guys out with broken legs, you know, or dislocated knees. So Punkros was the first group that actually banned heel hooks. They found that it was too much damage. So they did it to preserve the number of talent they had, you know, because some of their biggest stars went down the hill to yeah, right. knee surgery. Um, so, yeah, I was with Punk Crust from actually, we started in 93. One of my other guys fought in 93. And then I fought 94, 95, 96. And while I was over there, I became friends with the guys from Shudo. Now, where Shudo came from, one of the big names in pro wrestling was uh, the guy that started Shudo. He, he used to wear the tiger mask. Tiger mask. Right? He was known as Tiger Mask. And, and, and just for people listening, they, they are a rival organization at that point in time. In, at that time, Shudo started purely. And, and what happened is uh, he went to all Japan wrestling and he said, listen, I want to I do fighting, but I, wanna, um, uh, I have an amateur base and build it up. So he created, he actually created an octagonal ring. Yeah, thing. yeah. So, so were, same, same mission to have real yeah. fights, but on an amateur scale, yeah. effectively. And, but they wore face masks and they were, um, yeah, there was more striking involved. And he had striking on the ground as well. Right, okay. So he was the first one that had close to striking. So that was the, the start of Shudo. And they started amateur. So while I was fighting pro for Punkrust, I befriended a, a reporter over there and he introduced me to a mate of his and I went and would visit the shooto gyms training and I'd get my ass handed to me by, they had good, uh, I always remember went there and there was a really good sunbow guy and we had the sunbow jackets on, he just tossed me around and yeah, right. armbarred me, you know, and, and stuff like that. So I enjoyed the shooto side. Then they said, oh, look, you know, do you have any amateurs that can come over here and compete? So that kind of put me at odds with Pancras because I could see, because I had a lot of lightweights, guys that, 50, 60, and they couldn't fight in Pancras because mm. there was no weight class. 
So I said, look, I'll, I'll only send my lightweight here. And then, yeah, Pankras didn't like that. And he answered, look, we can't have you doing both. Make a choice. So I ch- chose Shudo in 97. Um, uh, prior to that, you know, people like Anthony Langer took Anthony Lang over. He fought in Shudo. Uh, uh, Len Zaslaski, the wrestler, which I think you remember, Len fought over there. A bunch of guys I took over there and fought um, in Shudo. And then I started fighting in 97. That's how I got started with Shudo. But the interesting thing was Shudo was always been, they were really MMA. Punk Rust was kind of modified because you wore the shin pads, knee pads, no cl- clench fist striking. Though now Punk Rust is clench fist. They've had to go with the times. Yeah. Um, Shudo always had clench fist. Yeah, it was like, we're going to punch. And we're going to really you know, try and knock each other out. Yeah. And uh the founder of Shudo, that was his goal, was to have a real mixed martial art. And uh, and he saw Brazil. He went and trained in Brazil and, and did whatever he did. Um, and that's how Shudo got started. That's why it's... Such, and they became rivals in the end. But what's happened, Shudo maintained its amateur base, but it lost a lot of its... Uh, because they... I, I don't know why they didn't align with any of the UFC guys, where I think Pankras did. So okay. yeah, they're probably about equal now. Yeah, where before Punk Rust was the biggest thing in Japan and then Shudo became even bigger because they were bringing all the good Brazilians over and having Valo two-day Japan open and stuff like that. But now I don't think there's any, they're about the same. So I guess because we're going back in time, now that would certainly be an issue, but there wasn't you, I assume your, your pancreas fights are pro, but in theoretically you're having amateur shooter fights after that? Not me. By the time I joined in nine, I think the first pro fights they did was in 90, end of 96. All right. Okay. So I think Anthony fought then, and that was when they started, okay, now we're going pro. They built up amateur fights for about three, four years. I think they started in 92 before. All right. Okay. Um, Pankras, I can't remember now. I've got to look it up. But they built a base, and they were clever because by doing building an amateur base, they they built a bigger uh, talent pool for fighters. Mm. Whereas Pankras was very much elite. You know, you had tryouts once a year where people would come and try out to join the shoot the Pankras gym. And I've seen yeah. those; they were pretty brutal. And it's funny that the kids would have to be there all week doing that in the middle of the night kids would get up and sneak out and run away (laughs) (laughs) yeah typical japanese kind of stuff and then yeah there were i saw brutality beatings i saw kids getting slapped and punched you know and they just got a woman i saw it was that Uh, yeah all that antonio inokio inoki type type stuff yeah yeah. yeah, it wasn't good you know and and the shooter guy the founder he can't be there's classic video of him hitting a kid with a shin iron break oh man they all came from that old school. They thought that's just the way to, to train people, which we know isn't. But uh, we know that now. There's a lot of years for us. Yeah. So basically, my career of fighting 94 to 2001, 94 to 96 punk rust, 97 to, uh, to 2001 shooter. So not a big lot of fights because I, you know, I spent as much time building my gym as I did fighting. So I only had 13 fights in the end. So you know, it's a mixed record. You know, it's a lost more fights than I won or drew. So yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, it was different. Yeah, my mentality was a bit different. I was fighting to, yeah, I wanted to see if the stuff I did worked. And I just thought, you know, I've got to fight. You know, do you want to mm. see what this is all about? You know, whereas my mentality now, if I had my now mentality, be okay, I'm going to fight to win and be the champ. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what was I going to ask you from there? Oh, because you had mentioned Shamrock. So, we, we primarily, or at least, you know, me, we know them through their introduction, the UFC and sort of talking. He was, 
Ken Shamrock was the first guy to come in who looked built as, as a, you know, a mixed martial artist. Um, Lion's Den was pretty legendary. You fought not only him, but, but Vernon White, who came out of that camp yep. as well. Um, what do you remember? Because you had already said, oh, like they wanted to bring Shamrock in. Where did he get this reputation um, so far back then before anyone, like how, how did he become kind of known and why was when, he wanted when they the were at, um, When they were at the pro wrestling, uh, they occasionally had real fights. Okay. So they would, I mean, there's a legendary fight, Roberto Duran. What? There was a vi- look up really? Roberto Duran fighting one of the old pro wrestlers there. It was okay. Well, remember Antonio Inoki fought Muhammad Ali. Yeah, that was, that was a terrible fight, though. I think it looked like he was trying to do jump well, kicks at his legs and stuff. Yeah, he was right on the ground because he didn't want to yeah. stand. He was yeah. going to get knocked down. But if you look at uh, Roberto Duran fought one of the guys who belted the crowd. And Roberto Duran, big fat belly, and he's just working the body. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's classic fights. Maurice Smith, who was a world kickboxing champion. Uh-huh. Like, they were stupid enough to take him on. And he just... And the funny thing is, I spoke to Maurice quite a lot, you know, because I became good friends with him. Like, were you what in you? the gym when Maurice came? Oh, no, that was no. Maurice Smith. He did some seminars for him because he was coming to Australia all the time. He had some kids out here that, um, uh, yeah... They would come and say, look, uh, we want you to fight Mr. So-and-so, but look, could you just look after him and carry him? So you do that. And then sometimes they go, we want you to fight this guy. And he'd look at him and goes, and fight him. In other words, yeah, right. okay. him. And you'd see some fights. If you look at those old, uh, I, I forget what, what the show was called. Was it New Japan Wrestling or whatever? But Maurice Smith knocking him out like sparking him yeah, or right. going the distance. And, so, was, and the, so these are still under the pro wrestling banner at the time, hey? They, they would either have a kickboxing fight or like where it would be like they would wear their punk rush short or their old pro wrestling gear and fight Maurice and get sparked or it'd be a mixed fight, you know, where yeah, they, generally, yeah, if, if it was a real fight and it was one of the good guys, they'd take Maurice down and tap him out real quick, you know, yeah. like they weren't stupid enough to stand up. With the Roberto Duran, I think you can see work the body. He was probably told, look, please, Mr. Duran, yeah, uh, please make the fight good, you know? So in other words, don't spark him. But, mate, look it up. You'll see it. It's amazing. It's yeah, okay. Someone told me about it years ago and I looked for it. Oh, holy shit. We've got a dram fighting in all Japan wrestling. It's just like, yeah. So, uh, so the, the Lions Den gets known through pro wrestling then originally. I think, and then, well, then Shamrock was a big star in the pro wrestling and he had a couple of these boxer versus wrestler fights and he was known, you know, he could really shoot. You know, he could mm. take these guys and he could hook them. So, and obviously... They all trained together, and Shamrock was exceptional. Yeah, you know, he was one of the best guys there. So he would kill. Yeah, he would just take out all the Japanese. Yeah, good wrestling background. So hmm. I think uh, it was the old pro wrestling thing where you had your your group of fighters, but you'd have one or two guys that could break everybody. So when they'd go, oh, in pro wrestling, you know, this guy gets the title. Sometimes guys, oh, I don't want to keep the title. Like, well, in that case, fight Shamrock. And Shamrock is going to beat you up. Okay. I'll give up the title. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> yeah, right. So yeah, and, and Ken wanted to fight real as well, and that's why he went to Punk Rush. You know, he he had a couple of real fights. And thought no, nah. you know, just the pro wrestling was enough, and then he went to that. And um, yeah, I, I think yeah, Ken was well ahead of the yeah, well ahead of everybody back then. Yeah, he had the technique, the the actually knew how to hook guys, so he had the catch wrestling style. Um, but obviously they didn't. Yeah, he wasn't a, a crash hot striker back then. Um, and then when Punk Rust brought in guys like Matt Hume, who had uh, 
a really good Thai boxing coach there, and Matt had a good wrestling background as well. Yeah. So they were a good addition to. So Matt Hume was even around back then, hey? Because I remember him as sort of a referee from Pride, and obviously he's no, now Matt coaching fought, Demetrius Johnson. Yeah. And you had Jason Delucia, you had well, Frank yeah, right, came yeah. in after Frank Juarez, but he changed his name to Shamrock. Um, obviously, you had Ken, you had uh, uh, Matt Hume, yeah, with Todd Bjornathan. They were fighting back then, and we, we, yeah, there'd be guys floating in and out all the time, you know, big names that would have to fight. Be and Marie Smith would fight regularly back then. Then Bus came in, and yeah, just just extremely strong, and just what a guy, you know, what a fighter. Who who do you kind of consider the 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 original mixed martial artists who blended them together? What what I'm kind of asking about that is, like you mentioned, Marie Smith, and and I kind of remember specifically the fight he had with Coleman, where he accepted the fact that he was going to get taken down, and you know stomped on for 20 minutes but then you know he's cross training with frank shamrock and frank shamrock is arguably the guy who who could do both equally well well what do you sort of remember about that period and i guess am i kind of in the right range of, of discussing either one of those guys as yeah, really I think the true mixed the martial artists? Could, if you look at the prototype of the adesanyas now and yeah you know, the real good guys you look at bus and maurice because they were both competent strikers who learned how to grapple mm. So, yeah, like, whereas, yeah, Shamrock was a fantastic uh, catch wrestler and rest and wrestler who had to learn how to strike. But unfortunately, you know, that I think that's been his undoing, you know, having too many boxing fights and stuff like that, you know. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Frank was very good at the time. Uh, but, yeah, if, if you look at who are the prototypes for the current champions and guys, guys like Maurice and Buss. So. Yeah, and, and it's it's funny because we're back to strikers, and I think it almost kind of starts maybe a decade ago with Junior Dos Santos, who then into Stipe and Adesanya, and, and you know it, it always used to be ground and pound, but now it's really about being able to strike and sprawl and brawl. Like it, it kind of comes back almost to just wrestle, box, and sprawl and brawl a lot of the time. Yeah, look at the original Pancration, like I said in the previous uh, uh, before, it's uh, who was the best Pancras Pancration fighter, the best boxer out of the wrestlers, and the best wrestler out of the boxers. Yeah, so you just got to out wrestle all the boxes and you got to outbox all the wrestlers. So we'll start talking about catch and that sort of thing now, because again, I wasn't like, like a lot of people of my age group, it was the introduction of BJJ into the UFC that kind of took the world by storm. Now, somewhere maybe around five years ago, I, I don't know if it was necessarily more people paying attention to Josh Barnett. I know it's come from Eric Paulson, but catch wrestling seems to be getting a lot of attention now, and, and, and we're training that as well. And you, you seem to be, you know it's there, but for like the past 20 years, it, 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 it was, you know, a, a far off fourth or fifth place to BJJ Absolutely. judo and those sorts of what, what do you think has kind of caused this um i guess rebirth or, or recognition of, of catch after kind of being stuck you know out in the wilderness for so long i think well definitely bjj has held it back you know it's just i remember like when i was doing bjj oh leg locks that's a cheap way that's that's cheap yeah. way, you know yeah. that's, you don't leg lock it's just like you, you were told not to do certain things like Oh, pressure points. So like, you know, in catch wrestling, you've trained with me where you stick an elbow in somewhere and get a reaction. Constantly. You just constantly seek that stuff out. Yeah. yeah and just, <laughs> the way you, you get a grip and you're putting a wrist lock on as you're like, oh, I think that's the big thing now. Wrist locks are going to be the next big thing. You reckon so? Yeah, right. Oh, man, yeah, yeah. More and more wrist locks, especially in BJJ. If you look at, 
the problem with wrist locks is they're so devastating because as you're trying to take the pressure it, it's off, all torquing back. yeah we yeah, heel hooks and wrist locks it's so much pressure on small joints effectively yeah and and the wrist lock is not like a a, a leg lock where yeah you can turn your body the wrist lock is just isolating the wrist and yeah bending mm. it back this way or this way and yeah they, they, and they just come on so fast but yeah in in catch wrestling you're constantly twisting and putting pressure on the wrist to manipulate and um yeah for instance when someone does a figure four grip you know you're always told oh, i'll put 10 fingers yeah, five fingers that side, whereas a catch wrestler won't catch that way. What do we do? We'll take the blade of the hand and twist it and bring it in. And, yeah, yeah. yeah and that's catch wrestlers are just yeah, monster hands. Yeah, they're just. Uh, I, I met um, Fujiwara, uh, Yoshitaki Fujiwara, and he's a huge guy. I didn't know how big he was. And, and when I shook his hand, I went to shake it. It felt like <laughs> a paw that big. Yeah, right. just like, and just imagine this guy grabbing your wrist and. Yeah, just twisting it. And if you look at all these instructional videos, that's what he's like. And, you know, grab your toes and twist. So, yeah, he's starting at the little digits and then working up the joint. And I think that's the beauty of catch wrestling. It's it's so tight because, yeah, it just takes up every bit of slack. And that was the advantage John Donahue had. He had that fantastic BJJ background through the Machados. Yep. But then he was so fortunate that he was a Gene LaBelle black belt as well. So, um, was he really? Yeah, right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so J- J- no, John Donahue's like a mate. That's what I'm saying. One thing I did like about John is he he had such a broad base. He'd wrestled with um, uh, Rico Ciparelli. He trained with Hegan. He was one of he Hegan's main training partner for years. He had trained with Gene LaBelle for Hegan. So yeah, right. he had so many tools in his chest, you know, and that kind of knowledge. And uh, and yeah, he was an impressive coach in that regards when it came as a technical coach i couldn't fool him yeah why don't we talk about him a little bit more for a second yeah. because I, I i remember so so now between knowing you with the roosters i i think um you know not that i'm a a, a massive follower of league yeah. but i watch it and i think it was probably what around 2006 2007 that they were grapple tackle was really big and i think he was working with the storm at that point in time yeah. Anth has told me he's working with the tigers so it seems that they all, all these clubs have brought in grapplers as in uh wes who's working with them and said that he was doing some work with them parosh oh good okay yeah, yeah. so because i think it's concord is like two blocks away from from his gym and five dock um what i guess what i'm asking is when do you remember sort of this kicking off because i you know we, we even went on the footy show with with um anthony elvis to talk about this back in like 2006 or seven and it was it was big news grapple tackle was it was like the thing for like a year when it came to league. Well, look, what happened was, well, Chris Chris Aceman got the ball rolling. He was working with the Brisbane Broncos. Okay. And Craig Bellamy, the coach of Melbourne, was up there. And when he moved to Melbourne, he asked Chris, who do you know down here that can help us with a wrestle? And Chris Aceman recommended John Donahue, knew John Donahue. So they reached out and contacted John. Now, John's personality, if you've ever met John, you know he's a bit of a ruthless uh <laughs> like he's just like he's he yeah he, he's quite evil and when he applies things and stuff like that maybe from his Gene LaBelle background but Bellamy has a very similar trait very ruthless so they got on like a house on fire and it was basically I, I remember training with John back in 2002 or three and the storm had come in it was just brutal what he was doing to so he actually started the storm back then and then they started improving and um what happens a lot of the stuff they did there weren't rules around it so they mm-hmm. were doing stuff which was probably contrary to the spirit of the game <laughs> as what they would say now but 
there was no rule against it. You know, there were guys that used to do similar stuff before, but they were just known as, yeah, just rough, dirty players. But then the whole team were applying pranks and, you know, like chin, chin straps and, yeah, and, and doing and, stuff like that, yeah. better handles and levers. And then everybody was blowing up about it. And, yeah, well, they were just controlling the ruck, which is when they're, you know, when they're tackling and, and peeling off and they were just doing it better than everybody, you know. And, yeah, then people tried to fight fire with fire and then the league came in and changed the rules to stop certain things. And, you know, it's, yeah, it's gone too far where now it's, they're trying to stop it all together, but you can't because wrestling is intrinsic to rugby league. You, you tackle someone, you take them down. That's how you do it. You know, there's, there's no other way to do it. But um, with, uh, with the storm, with what John did back then, um, it was within the rules at the time. And then the rules had to change to stop that stuff. And then mm. they adapted and they adopted stuff. And, and that's what's it. Now, what a league get out of wrestling and, and again, wrestling, it's not so much jujitsu, is just being more efficient of taking people down or getting back or getting up to your feet to play the ball faster. That's what's really, really just good. Just I guess, effectively. Yeah. And and unlike what people think, in league, once you take someone down, you can't adjust your position in your handle. So you can't go, I'm going to put my hand here. And it, that's called a second effort. So you get penalised. Yeah. Basically, when you grab them, whatever handles you have standing, you got to take to the ground and then you got to release and get up. So as soon as you start working them over, which would be reasonable in jiu-jitsu or wrestling, you know, to adjust, then you can't do that. So, so in a practical sense, do you, do you want to tell me sort of what that means and, and, and how you might work that with the roosters? Well, no, what we do is, is you go back to proper tackling technique or what they call hit stick wrestle. You know, you hit no, nothing beats in rugby league, nothing beats impact. Mm. But if you don't have good contact to begin with, and if you don't or absorb the other person's energy, then you, you can't stick to them. You can't get handles regardless of what you do. Once you get handles, then you have to work them down to the ground. Yeah. And that's where that's quite complicated too, because the guy can spin and, and, and it's not like you've got uh, jujitsu uniforms to hold on to. That's where your wrestling comes in, understanding which handles to use and then how you apply pressure on the ground. And again, it's not like jujitsu or wrestling where you can sag your weight because what you've got to do is you've got to have the ability to peel out and get to your feet quite fast. Yes. Move. So, as I said, as far as is there any, you could look at it and say, oh, it kind of looks like wrestling. Yeah, you could say that. There's, there's no, you're not going to see someone do a single leg. You're not going to see yeah, someone yeah. do a shoulder throw. You're not going to see someone do a, uh, yeah, a suplex or a half suplex or hip toss. They just, they're not part of wrestling. It's, yeah, it's, it's a wrestling tackle with some, uh, sorry, it's a footy tackle with, with principles of pressure and control and, and stuff so do you like think that. a lot of that has led to the new rules of six again which they've been which has been a you know a big big change in the game yeah but when you look at most of the penalties because like my role at the roosters is not just a, as a technical coach but you know we do a lot of um analysis and and uh the, you call the stats and stuff like that a lot of those repeat sets or six games are for things that are not wrestling orientated. It could be not being when they get up, not being right front square, or it could be uh, not peeling out fast enough, you know, it, that stuff. But as far as the good initial contact stick and takedown, very rarely do you get penalized for that. So mm. yeah, I think what football teams really enjoy about any kind of wrestling training, it's the closest thing to match uh, conditions. 
the heart rates get up high, the amount of strength and aerobic work matches the, the, the footy because they've stuck heart rate monitors on the boys and they have uh, uh, grommets, they have uh, sensors in the back of the shirts where they can do deceleration forces in yeah, the yeah. back. That's right. yeah. But they actually know what kind of pressures come in the game. And when they put those on during wrestling sessions, they find they almost match the game. So okay. the coach and the, the sports scientists encourage more wrestling you know, within the program to simulate those kind of conditions. As far mm. as technique goes, I basically, some of the football principles I've brought back into the gym because I think they're quite good. You know? But they're, they're not many, but it's a lot of the, um, uh, what would you call, uh, ethical kind of principles of tackling. You know, as yeah, okay. To, uh, well, that's, that's a pretty good segue when you, when you talk about um, how, how wrestling lifts the heart rate almost to, to actual competition. Um, you know, we were talking about how, how, now the UFC, a lot of a lot of the strikers are the top tier guys and the champions. But traditionally, it's always been wrestlers, and uh, we'll talk about sort of folk style and collegiate wrestling as well, which seems to be the the dominant one. But why do you think it's been so hard traditionally for strikers to enter? What, what do you? I guess rather my question is, is oftentimes it seems that strikers are not willing to put in the time or don't have the mentality to learn grappling, effective grappling. Okay, I think it's got to do more with energy systems. Uh, like I have first-hand knowledge of that working with Pete Graham and, and other guys. And what happens is there's a certain energy system when you're striking, you know, it's explosive, it's short burst. When you suddenly put a grapple in there and, you, and you've got that pressure and you're not breathing as well and you've got to wrestle your way out, you lose a lot of that spring and explosiveness that you've had mm. unless you specifically train that way. So I think guys like Adesanya and Whitaker. Uh, yeah, especially those guys because they're machines. Yeah, they're awesome. What they do really well now is it's their is probably the the kind of training energy systems that they use because they don't strike any differently to anybody and they don't grapple any differently to anybody. What they do is they're able to switch from ground to stand back to ground without losing tempo, without you know having to recover. Whereas you used to see in the early days, the strikers would get taken down once, maybe scramble to their feet, and then they just lost all the spring out. And that was it, yeah. yeah. So, and can I ask you what that means when you say energy systems? Okay, well, you've got, you know, the three basic energies. You've got your aerobic, which is long-lasting. You've got your um, ATP, adenosine triphosphate. And then you've got your CP, creatinine phosphate. So, you know, the sprint, you know, 100-meter sprint is that first 10 seconds. You know, you, you blow that out, you can't sprint again. Then you've got an energy system which works for about 40, 50 seconds, and that's your um, you know, creatinine phosphate. That's more you know, middle distance kind of stuff. And then you've got your endurance, long distance. So you're constantly training to go from that high-speed, high-intensity training and repeat that over and over again without dropping off in your speed and power. So... Yeah, it's the kind of training guys do now with, yeah, whether you do a 40-second interval with a 20-second break or whether you do a 30-second uh, interval with a 15-second break and, yeah, the amount of load that you that you put on there, whether it's, yeah, 30% of your maximum or 60%. So I think the science behind training in mixed martial arts is catching up okay. to where it should be like other sports. So I, the really good guys have got a team of guys, especially if you've got someone that can program and periodize. And that's one thing that I've learned. That's the thing I've brought back to the football, understanding how to apply that science and that knowledge to fighters. Mm. So, uh, 
and that's I think the step that the good fighters make. Yeah, and obviously you've got some freaks, yeah, you know, the guys that are just like he just keeps coming and doesn't stop. Yeah. Um, and that's where the we were you know, going to talk about collegiate wrestlers. They had that because they scramble so well. Let's let's break this up into a, a few parts here. So so you kind of define it. Strikers just generally who move into this uh, aren't aren't prepared or aren't willing to kind of adapt to that. I guess is what you're saying. It's uncomfortable right. and. Yeah, I don't think it's because they've got to learn a new skill set. If you ask most grab, uh, most strikers, and I know Peter found it at first, they get claustrophobic and it's like, oh, you know, it, they panic underneath because it's so foreign to them. And because this is a different way of breathing. You know, one of the things mm. you get out of football is you're getting three guys. You're getting yeah, maybe yeah. two guys, 200 kilos holding you down. And you've got to be able and to And then you, you reset that. and do it again. And yeah. get up and do something. And, and that's one thing people don't realise. It's, it's different when it's a one-on-one I'm holding you down. I'm adjusting. I'm never, yeah. You remember that old jujitsu thing, the hundred kilos are, you know, they used to talk about holding someone down, the hundred kilo take down or hold or something. There was a Brazilian jujitsu thing, how to apply a lot of pressure okay. um, yeah. and put weight on guys, you know, and, and that's fine for jujitsu wrestling because you've got the time in football. You've got to do that five seconds and get up. So what you do in football is you stack two or three guys on top and you create the same pressure. So you've got to imagine you're suddenly <laughs> trying to freeze, you're flattened out, and then you've got to get up and play the ball. Yeah, yeah. And that's one thing footballers do. They, they we, That's why they like the wrestling training is because it gets them used to that uncomfortable or, or yeah, that not being able to breathe. And you mm. teach them to breathe under pressure. Whereas most people under pressure hold their breath. And that's what I think happens yeah. to a lot of strikers. They're used to striking their way out rather than yeah, holding and then creating space, wriggling and then breaking free. And yeah, it, it's a tough one. Okay, so this is good. I think we're, we're moving in the right place. So um, be, before we talk about collegiate and, and folk style and all that, what do you think, because we're going right into the same part, which again, I got introduced to this doing BJJ and then working prior and with guys like you for MMA, I really enjoy the wrestling-based MMA activities. What I've still found though, and, and we'll talk about sport jujitsu as well and how that goes with it in a second. A lot of the guys that, that now that I'm doing some teaching with them, I find it incredibly hard that if they start in BJJ to get the mindset of simply pulling guard versus forcing that scramble. And I guess we can talk about leg locking and sport BJJ after that, but I assume that you've had to deal with this. It's been a very, very hard struggle with me to create drills and try to put it through people that when you get taken down, it's not automatically pull guard. You have to, if you intend to fight, you got to figure out a way to, to try to not get on your back. I think one of the best training sessions, I, I, well, when I first started going to the States, I trained with John Lewis at JSEC, you know, uh, so he's an early MMA guy. I remember John Lewis, yeah. yeah John, and they used to do a drill, and, and he was a Pedneris guy, so, you know, Andre had come there. One of the simple drills they did is you start on your back, someone's on top, and you got three things. I think you might have done stand, sweep, or submit. Yep. So number one priority is get back to your feet. So how to scramble back to your feet. So they did that back then, which is really good. If you can't stand, then you try and reverse your sweep. If you can't sweep, only then do you go for a submission. Mm. You know what I mean? So the guys that just go for submission that that don't try and sweep or stand basically spend a lot of time on the bottom getting beaten up. Yeah, uh, The guys that try and stand and create that, and then what happens is the guy that's trying to keep you down puts extra pressure on you or he's got to adjust. Yeah, you know, suddenly he he you might find a, a tipping point where you can sweep and reverse. Yeah. 
or you find that you've created enough space then to scramble back and get to your feet or snap him down. So simply doing a drill like stand, sweep or submit is a fantastic uh, entry to, to get people thinking differently in BJJ. You know, uh, yeah. that's that's probably a good drill. You're going to get guys that just simply lie on their back and try and submit. So, well, you're going to spend all night down there unless you try and stand up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's going to get pretty boring for you. <laughs> and and then how do you think that's trend? Like I, because there's kind of there's multiple periods of BJJ now, and I find it. I feel like at my age, you're a few years older than me. With Dean Lister and um, John Danaher introducing this like fully encompassing leg locking game. The sport jujitsu that I watch today, I find it very difficult to watch where they tap hands and they both drop to an open butt scoot guard and they attack legs. Not enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I wonder, because we've got guys like uh, Gary Tonin in, in one, and I've had the conversation with other people. Do you, do you think that we will see a modern day leg locker, leg locker who can effectively transition that into MMA? Oh. Is there anybody that's fighting the top tier guys that's beating them with it? I think you, you mentioned in the previous interview too, there was a guy named Ryan Hall who's been doing this effectively. Gary, Ryan Hall yeah. Is, yeah. Gary Tonin has been doing it, it, it very well, but it's um, it, it's effectively um, I don't want to say one trick pony because again, if I was doing pure jujitsu with these guys, they would just take the limbs completely off of me. Yeah. But um, who who was it? It reminds me very much of like Iminari. It's like if you if you can identify the fact that he's going to roll and take out your legs and prevent that from happening you've you've taken their game away from them effectively yeah. i suppose well you know and then hopefully these guys are getting clever enough that they're going to fake going down and then come up with an uppercut or a knee and you know which is fantastic if they do that it's just that's what was it junior dos santos did that with mark hunt who was it? Uh, he no he wheel kicked him in the face but i'm trying to remember what and he... i remember when uh, who was it the fort mark that kept shooting him for the legs and then mark back out and then he go to go and then stand up and then he went to shoot mark went down and need mark straight in the face and knocked him out uh, uh it wasn't junior it was one of yeah oh. one of the brazilians did it, it was just yeah such oh a- yeah that that would have had to have been um when he was a uh, champion what, what's his face um i I'll, I'll come back to you. i know exactly who we're talking anyway, about anyway but yeah maybe look i don't think it's a verdun that's who it Verdun. Is. Okay. Yeah. yes yeah so look i think maybe the leg locking game look they're building the good thing for them is if they if they're doing it now and it's working for them, then what it's going to do is is the next guy fighting them to go shit. Now I've got to change right. my style, which really you don't want to do. What you need to do is you, you need to adjust your style to to account for that. But you know if people now are more worried about the legs, 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 then they're going to be more open to those maybe up kicks or a knee or something. So they'll find a bridge to make that effective. Well, I think the leg lockers, hopefully, those guys that are using them are also going, well, how am I going to use this to open up an opportunity for a strike? Though, I honestly believe it's like, it's frustrating to see world-class wrestlers fighting in MMA who are beating everybody up, you know, collar time, dirty boxing, then suddenly trying to box guys and getting knocked out. So why would you change your style? Yeah. And we see that a lot. Yeah, yeah. So, like, yeah, they knock someone out. They think, oh, this is great. Now I can just knock people out. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's talk about that for a second then, because a lot of people are confused by it. And, and I was confused by it too, because even though I grew up in Canada, I, I, I wasn't a high school wrestler. And a lot of people don't understand sort of catch, Greco-Roman freestyle. So collegiate wrestling is the program that most American kids go to high school with to learn how to wrestle. And the dominant yeah. form of wrestling is folk-style wrestling, which is really the kind that translates to MMA because there's a lot of ground control. And typically 
once they finish high school, if they wish to continue to develop or continue to wrestle, they begin to specialize in either Greco-Roman or freestyle. And catch is fingerprinted all around these elements, but it's catch is wrestling with the submission. So these are diluted forms of wrestling without the submissions. If I broadly, am I, am I describing that correctly? That's correct. Because if you look at where folk style came from, it came from the original kind of catch, 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 catch can, which is what catch stands for. Catch is catch can. Right. So that's, okay. that's what it stands for. And absolutely, that's the predominant style came from Germany originally, my understanding is. Hackenschmidt, uh, is it, isn't that? Or? Yeah. So it came from there. And then there was places in England that were really good at it, came to the States. It's interesting in the States, they have that, uh, is it called the junior, uh, US junior nationals in Fargo. Yeah. It's a junior or school age, yeah. So the kids go there and they're, it's an eight-day competition, four days of freestyle, four days of Greco-Roman. And these kids that a lot already do uh, um, catch, sorry, they do folk, folk style, style. And, and stuff, go to this and then try their hand at freestyle or Greco. And you've got 5,000 odd wrestlers, 23 mats. I've been there three times refereeing. So mm. I've seen, seen it quite often. And that's just an amazing place. But... Uh, in the US, I think they've got like over 5 million registered wrestlers. Yeah, yeah, More right. people can play sport in Australia. That's <laughs> 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 an number of people wrestling. So the, yeah, the, the great thing about catch and, and folk style is unlike the Olympic style where if you slip or you fall and you land, uh, land on the ground, you go to your belly, you kind of stay there and then the guy tries to re, you know, tip you over and if you can't, you get called up. So you're actually giving up your back. Yeah, yeah, ideally not to, though they're getting better at scrambling. Whereas folk style or collegiate style reward you for not giving up your back, or if you do go down, is getting back up and escape points, which, mm. yeah, that, that's why it's such a strong style. And that's why the good folk style or collegiate style has made the best transition to MMA rather than the Olympic style guys. And, and do you think it's, it's fairly safe to say, because, um, you know, in, in the early days of MMA, it was all freestyle wrestling. If you remember, it was, it was, it was double legs, double legs, double legs, double legs. And as, as you sort of get older, you can't do that anymore. And what I found is it's, I'm finding it much easier to teach my guys Greco-Roman wrestling where we don't have to be so dynamic, where you just go, if you can just get some grips on them, you, you, you got a chance. Range is different now. You, you're going to, you're fighting in it. Look, if you look at all the good guys now, Gone are the days where, you know, you stalk guys like like Couture in the early days when he came around. I, I don't know if he did the seminar that we had, and he made a really good mm. point. For some reason, the UFC back then in the octagon had a octagon in lines printed inside the cage. Yeah. And uh, sorry, on the on the mat. So and you knew how far away you were from the, the yeah, cage and, at any point yeah, time. That was perfect for him because he knew as soon as he got someone back to that line, that was the perfect opportunity to shoot. And because he was, you know, pressuring and getting close enough, he would able to shoot at that point, bounce him off the cage. And off the cage, yeah. yeah. So yeah. that was one of his big skills uh, and, and the drills that we did with him. And they were brilliant drills. And then but what's happened now is people are better at, at evading that range. And you've got the Adesanya's. And, yeah, the body type has definitely changed. Longer, lengthier guys, which... At, yeah, African like body that. type, yeah, effectively almost, yeah. Crazy, you know, thank God I never thought <laughs> like that. Um, and then, but you're going to have some specialist takedown guys, but the reason why Khabib was so good is if you look at, you know, you can go to the internet and look at uh, Chechen uh, scrambles, Chechen wrestler scrambles. They scramble better than any other wrestler. 
Yeah, right. Okay, so that's something to Google, is it? YouTube? Look for those Chechen scrambles or mad Russian scrambles, and you'll find most of the wrestlers are Dagestani or Chechen or whatever. They were doing that kind of collegiate, you know, folk-style scrambling. They've been doing that for years, you know, because it's their mountain style or whatever it is. So, um, yeah. With, with now, I think you've got, like you said, Greco is the way to go because you've got to get in close enough to engage and, and shoot or, or grapple from them and, and work more upper body takedowns. Mm. And then if you can get him up against the cage, yeah, you know, it used to be that you press him up against the cage, drop your level, take the legs. You don't see much of that anymore because guys are really good at staying off the cage. Yeah. Well, it's just so much easier than constant level changes, especially, you know, as you get older and your knees start to go and you realize that you can't squat 200 pounds or anything like that anymore. Um, Randy Couture. Uh, I know that you consider yourself good friends with him. What I think is very funny is I still have a coacher instructional from probably like 2005 or something that, that talks about all these uh, Greco clinch work and you're in it at the end of the thing. I think he's got some behind the scenes footage of training in Japan or something. There's a, there's yeah. a clip of you right yeah, at the a, end of it. It was when he fought Ensign in Nui yeah. and he lost, which was a big shock. That was the arm bar, I think from the bottom. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, because there was, Basically, I was just lucky. They, they, Japan invited me out to commentate, do the English commentary. Oh, really? Yeah, right. Yeah, so okay. if you ever you can hear me doing a little bit of commentary and stuff, uh, but it's in Japanese and then some stuff. Um, and I was lucky. I had Coleman. Um, so there was Mark Coleman, Randy. Uh, um, oh, God, what's his name? The big heavyweight. Uh, I'll think of his name, not... Uh, from Ohio, so yeah, there was all these great guys there, and then we I managed to train with all of them, and it was fantastic. It was an opportunity to kind of, and that's how I got to know Randy a lot better, you know, through that trip. Yeah, okay. um, yeah. So it was, yeah. <laughs> well, we've been going for a while, so we'll start to wind down because I'm sure you got other things to do besides talk to me all day. Um, but as I mentioned, I, I sort of moved. I, I began to have the opportunity to start doing coaching maybe roughly around three years ago. And as, as I mentioned, I was listening to you on the other podcast. Um, it's a new phase and there is a transition between thinking or lying to yourself that you still have the ability to compete with some of these guys versus moving into a, a coaching role. And it was kind of interesting as saying like, look, your, your role has changed now. You're not really there to be a sparring partner for these guys anymore. You were there to help them learn and train them. Um, I'll ask you to talk a little bit about that and then also, as you, as you mentioned, creating systems. So almost like best practice for some of these guys to, to, to turn them into, or at least, you know, helping them meet their goals. Uh, the w best piece of advice I can give to anybody that's an ex-athlete, especially males more than females. You know, we're testosterone driven. Yeah, you know, most fighters are alpha males. Um, you want to prove yourself. You, you, it's very hard to finish fighting and not continue to be competitive. And uh, I find a lot of guys make that mistake. And I still see coaches and I've had coaches in my gym that were like that. And I gave him this advice that I got from another really good senior coach. He said, if you compete with your students and you beat them up and humiliate them, which, yeah, because they, you, you're showing them that you still got it, they, they um, will hate you for it. Yeah, they, they just despise you and they're just like he's a bully whatever if you really have a go compete and they beat you and they know you were trying hard to beat them they won't respect you anymore yeah right okay. and that's true that's what happens they go oh geez yeah he's always trying to show himself blah 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 and I, i've seen that firsthand with people I've, fortunately 
I've never been like that. You know, I've always tried to, to teach, but I've always had a passion for coaching. So as a coach, very, very hard not to compete um, and just be very wary of you know, who you do that. Now, I'm very honest with guys. I said, look, I'll give you two rounds. That's all I've got. I'm going to be <laughs> after that. I did, I did a training session. Boys, I'm going to go hard on you to stand up so you feel what it's like with a Greco guy. You know, we did some upper body wrestling. I roughed him up and said, that's it. That's it for me. I said, I don't have anything beyond that, boys. So, you know, now we'll go through it. But I was very honest with him. I said, look, yeah. if I had to spar anybody, you know, for real or something like that, no, it's just too old now to do that. So your job as a coach, um, yeah, there are those four stages. When you, when you get the new guy, it's do as you know, as a coach. I tell him what to do. He just does what I do. He, no discussion. Look, just do this. Make sure you do it that way. Then he gets to the stage where we can discuss it, but he still does what I tell him because I know what's best for him. Then we, when then we just then the next stage when he gets good enough, it's just like we discuss it together. And I so well, you choose. What do you want to do today? What do you want to work on? You know what you want to work on, and I help him. And then, yeah, the really good guys come in and say, look, I've been sparring and doing, we've got a problem here. And mm. again, as a coach, um, I know that I've been very, I'm very stale now for the last, especially with lockdowns and everything else in my businesses. Probably I, ha I haven't developed myself, any personal development since probably about 2016. Yeah. Um, really? Prior to that, yeah, right. I was constantly traveling. I was fortunate to be traveling with Pete and I was going to the States, training at some of the best gyms with the best people and upgrading my skill level. And I think that's one thing as a coach, you can sit back and say, oh, I was a champ, I was really good, and I got this black belt. But unless you're constantly upgrading, going and training with other people, going to other gyms and looking, you're going to stay stuck where you are and your students are going to exceed you. So as a coach, it doesn't mean you've got to compete more, but you definitely got to keep that mind ticking over. And, and again, the other where I've excelled as a coach, I might have stopped a little bit uh, with my technical stuff, which I hope to get back to, but where I'm really good, I've been fortunate with my job with a professional football team. I have better understanding of planning and, and volumes and loads and how to get guys to a level faster through scientific training principles and, you know, and, and learning how to coach better. So that's the other thing. The personal development could be from technical stuff because you always got to go and, yeah, you know, like you look online the other day, I saw a, uh, uh, body triangle escape and it looked identical what I did except for one little uh, point that he made about hooking the knee with an arm and doing it I thought great that's yeah. another point yeah that's so we've got to look at that as coaches now yeah we're going to get some guys come to us that are really really good uh, that's the other thing too is you're going to get these talented guys who you think man this kid's going to be a champion and then they don't stick with it and then you get mm. the guys and you've got to know yeah, the guys are going to stick with it. So one of the things is a great book called Curse of Talent, where you get these talented individuals. And be, oh, you're going to be a champ, mate. You're the best. You're kicking it. That's the wrong, that's the wrong uh, attitude. What it's got to be, mate, with hard work and that ability that you've got, if you keep working hard and you try and improve yourself, yeah, you're going to get somewhere. But it's going to take hard work. Yeah, oh, these wish... talented guys never have to work hard. And then when it does get hard, they back off. And yeah, I see that all the time. I was going to ask you about that specific because fighting and martial arts is a little bit different to any form of team sport, because if you join a team sport, you know, you're, you're, you're going to be having practices and games all season. So even if you only do it for two or three seasons, you can say that you're seasoned in that, but it takes up so long to fundamentally build up a fighter as a coach. I assume like, I, I assume it's got to be mentally taxing when you see how much time you've invested in someone 
for them to just kind of give it up after a couple of fights for you go, man, we put like four years into you. And all of a sudden you just decided that, no, I don't want to do this anymore. It's going to happen. Uh, I, I don't think you can't be bitter. Like when I was a younger coach and I had some, had one particular fighter who's extremely talented, like a, a Ian Schaefer. Yeah, you know, I got yeah. him started in MMA and he was just amazing. Yeah, you know, like I mean, his reflexes and and I can't take credit for that because he trained with Mick Spinks and Mick Spinks got that and I helped him with his MMA side, the transition side. So I, I can take a bit of credit for that. But, you know, I had him uh, lined up for fights with Shudo, but he went another way with some other BJJ guy that said, oh, come with me, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I was a bit shitty about that myself and as a coach, but, you know, I just let it go. You know, that, that was his path. Mm. Whereas if I sat there, whereas I saw Ian, you know, I think last year, some of the show, hugs and braces, you know, I love the kid still, you know, he's a good kid, but mate, that was his choice. And yeah, you know, I did my job as a human being, as a coach up to that point. Um, if he felt you know, he had to go somewhere else, that's great. What I can't let that do is for me to not coach guys. You know what I mean? Um, I have one of my good fighters now and he brings fighters from other gyms all the time in to train with and other Jim's probably wouldn't let that, but I said, mate, if this is helping you, great, bring them in. So, yeah, and then I'm helping those guys as well. So, All right, last one I got for you. In in the other interview you did, I found this hilarious to find out. You ended up training with Chuck Liddell without even knowing who he was. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> again, a J-set, and I've got the picture with it. And I, I remember they said, oh, this guy's got a fight coming up. Can you can you work with him in the cage? And, you know, my job was to press him up the cage, against the cage and try and keep him pinned there. And he was bang, big guy, you know, off. And then, you know, it was, oh, shit, this guy hit me. You know, he's really good. But, you know, we had a really good solid training session. And we got some photos afterwards. And then when I looked at the photo, it was a, you know, he was a bit beefier back then. <laughs> yeah. It was a young Chuck Liddell. It was quite funny, you know, because he didn't have the shaved head where you could see the uh, the tattoo on there. So I've got this picture of me and him there. I go, oh, my training partner at JSEC, and it was Chuck. It was just like, look, he probably wouldn't remember me, but yeah, you know, it's so funny that that happened. But look, I've trained with heaps of guys, like when Rico Rodriguez, you know, before he was any, yeah, like they used to at the Machado. That's who I was wondering if you said when you were talking about UFC heavyweights, you said the big guy. I was going, I wonder if yeah, you was, and, and they used Rico. to call him Jack Rico. It's just like yeah, yeah. He was a big chubby guy back then. And mate, he, yeah, he's awesome. You know, I remember training him and then he tried to heel hook me and, you know, I had my punk rust days and he all tried to knee bar me and John says, I wouldn't do that, Rico. And I just started <laughs> tweaking me. He's, oh, yeah, but yeah, not these days, tear me in half, but he's, um, yeah, it was so funny. But look, I was fortunate at the time that I trained, like I said, I trained with everybody and not really knowing um, who they were at the time or how big they would become. Like that, the punk rust really was the early days and, and created some friendships or some associations with people which have helped me develop, you know, in the future. So. Mm. Larry, I appreciate your time. I think we've been going for about an hour and a half. So I think yeah. that that'll probably do uh, enough. As I said, it's been almost a decade since I've spoken to you. So I hope it's not another decade before I have the chance to speak with you again. Um, but I, I hope I hope you come out of lockdown all right. And I hope things begin yeah. to, to pick up. Yeah. Well, look, yeah, the, the one thing I want to like move into, again, I'm, I'm still doing technical, but uh, is more uh, development of coaches, which I think is a, there's a big, Thing for like I said, I've had this fortunate thing mm. where I've learned a lot from football, and I can bring a lot of that skill and expertise to all combat sports. You know, which is quite lacking. You know, except maybe in the ones that are right up at the Olympic arena where there's funding and money for it. But I think that's the next step for the MMA guys. They're, they're the techniques there and the 
quality technical coaches are there, but I don't think there's enough people that know how to develop, you know, the, the physiology and, you know, the, mm. the stuff like diet is a big thing too, you know. You, I think as soon as uh, athletes and coaches embrace that part of training, then we're going to see a lot more guys like Whitaker and Volkanovski come out of Australia. Yeah, fair enough. Well, I'll, I'll ask you about this. I said I've been teaching for a few years. I got a private gym set up at my own house, and uh, if you want to check out Larry, it's it's Boxing Works. It's very easy to find online and, and send him an inquiry. And uh, I really appreciate your time, Larry. It's, it's so right. it's so good to kind of go through these periods, and as I said, just fill in these knowledge gaps of, of kind of what was going on at this point in time. And uh, I, I appreciate it because I never really got the chance to ask. You know, you finish a training session, you go, "I'm exhausted. I'm going home." <laughs> oh, look how many people are interested anyway so it's nice for someone to tell ah, there's there's a few of us around that that still enjoy this so yeah, yeah. young guys are too busy doing other stuff now yeah. fair enough well all the best until we speak again thanks buddy take care cool awesome